Napoleon Hill once said, It is literally true that you can succeed best and quickest by helping others to succeed. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And welcome to the beginning of Season 3. Season 3? Whew! I know, I'm just as surprised as you are to be here. If we keep at this long enough, that leading zero on the season number isn't going to be superfluous anymore. So, this is Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. What does that actually mean? Who are we? Well, I guess in a sense, we're not anyone. We're not industry insiders. We're not celebrity gamers. We're just two guys with a lot of gaming experience that want to share what we've learned along the way and our knowledge of gaming. And in a sense, we think that's our strength because it means that we're not tied to a company and we don't have this expert opinion that we believe that you have to follow because we are so special and important. We just have the insights we bring to the table from our 40 combined years of gaming and our 14 years of gaming together and our two years of podcasting experience. Our overall goal of this podcast is to get you to think more about your gaming. John and I kind of focus our lives around gaming and we want you to spend a little bit more time making it a great part of your life. So what are we talking about today? We are talking about Player archetypes. Now, we're not talking about archetypes for characters per se. Today, what we're talking about is the kinds of people who play role-playing games and what they hope to get out of those games. And a big part of the reason we want to talk about that is because when we understand why we do things and what our goals in doing those things are, we're better able to tailor those experiences to find the common ground that makes these games so enjoyable for everyone involved. So, way back in Season 1, we talked about the eight flavors of fun, the different ways that we can experience fun in our lives. This episode is about finding how the other people at the table have fun and really working together to find some sort of common ground so that way everyone can have fun. Uh, I'm reminded about Magic the Gathering. They had different player archetypes to describe the different people who play Magic the Gathering. Uh, Timmy, Johnny, and Spike. Yeah, and Vorthos, of course. And Melvin later, but... So, so what a Timmy is, a Timmy is a player who gets their satisfaction from the game by being able to make their big move. In most cases, this means bringing out a big monster, like that 10-10 that's lurking somewhere in your deck that you're finally going to have the power to bring into play, or something that has flight and vampirism, or even uh, Phage the Untouchable, where if she hits your enemy, you win the game. You know, that's pretty awesome. And that's the kind of thing that Timmy wants to see at the table, is something that has a lot of oomph that makes them stand out as a player. Johnny, on the other hand, really wants to experience something. They want to play out the different cards in their deck to have their combo go off. They want to have all the synergies that they've built into their deck finally play out and go forward and have their hours of planning finally go through. They, they really want to just go through and have this machine, this finely crafted thing, go forward and show how awesome they really are. 
Yeah, it shows their trick off. It shows off their ability to recognize the synergy between cards. That to them is important, you know, that they were able to recognize Guilty Conscience and Stuffy Doll as being a one-hit wonder if you can just get them both into play at the same time under the right circumstances. Then finally among the common player archetypes, we have Spike. The Spike is the player who wants to win. They're building their deck specifically around fine-tuning it into a winning machine that makes them the master of their table, the one who can always throw down victorious at all costs and in all circumstances. Their deck is a finely-tuned machine meant to identify each threat and remove it from play before it even becomes a problem. Spike is also the one who will net deck their deck. They will go out and find the decks that have finished in the top 10 and play that exact deck all the way through. Their goal is to win the game. The next magic player archetype we're going to talk about is the Vorthos. Now, they're kind of the weird outlier. They enjoy magic not because of what they do while playing, but because of what is in the game. They enjoy the art. They enjoy the aesthetics. They enjoy the story and the lore of the game. They enjoy everything about the game that isn't the game. Yeah, they're most likely to build decks around a theme of what art they like or or maybe even the type of wizard they imagine themselves playing in this magic game. Like maybe they uh, envision themselves as this plane walking wizard that's constantly casting counter spells and foiling his opponents that way. Or maybe they imagine themselves as the type that, you know, mingles fire and water into one unified whole and throws fireballs and counter spells together, whatever. In either case, they're making a, sort of a character for themselves, which is not generally the intent of magic, but it is a valid way of playing the game. And then the Melvin's just kind of a side version of that. It's kind of a Vorthos who's more into mechanics. They want to have a whole deck full of vampires or a whole deck full of uh, characters that flip. Um, actually, my brother once played a morph deck that was just like the whole unifying factor behind it is like every monster and it was a morph creature and it actually stopped kind of being a viable build after a while, but it was just fun to play. So he liked playing it. So those are the player archetypes of magic and we bring these up so that way you can understand why someone would want to play that game. Similarly, there were the archetypes for the people that used to play the old MUDs, the multi-user dungeons. Oh yeah, back in the bad old days of the internet, you might uh, dial into your local bulletin board, which could be running, say, Legend of Red Dragon or one of the other uh, now fairly obscure multiplayer games that were available at the time, and... Of those, there was sort of a list of archetypes. I remember this floating around the Usenet in the bad old days. Um, the Diamond, Spades, Clubs, and Hearts. Sort of uh, those four suits of cards were used as a way of symbolizing these. And the Diamonds were the players who played the game exactly as it was intended. They would be the ones who would stick to the major plot points. You know, if you were playing Ultima Online, they might immediately establish a personal goal for themselves and then pursue it completely. Whereas the Spades are the players who wanted to play the games in an unusual way or explore them in ways they weren't necessarily intended to. These are the kind of players who would, you know, focus on discovering as many side quests as they can or capturing one of each type of monster that you could capture in the game. You know, things like that where they would create goals for themselves that don't necessarily fall in line with the standard goals of the games. 
The other two archetypes were players who played with other players. You know, you had your clubs and hearts. Clubs were the players who wanted to do a lot of PvP-type activities and otherwise mess with other players and play a game with other players. Whether it was PvP or using them as allies, the point was that they were playing the game with other players, whereas the hearts were doing it because they wanted they wanted to create guilds, they wanted to create little governments, they wanted to make special interest groups within the game. Their whole goal was to establish this sort of social game within a game and allow themselves to play out this this social fantasy. And again, these aren't the same as modern RPGs, but it does kind of set the groundwork for that because the mud movement was a very big part of refining game culture and that's where we see concepts such as game balance come from back in the bad old days of D&D no one cared about game balance you know fighters were self-evidently weaker than paladins and rangers in the original dungeons and dragons and that was by design that was an intentional design choice but then as the muds became more popular people cared about whether you could just play a character that was right out the gate better than characters who had been playing for six or seven months and a lot of the building was built around that so just the same way that that sort of infrastructure in the game informed later game design ideas similarly these sort of player archetypes have defined and refined our views of how people play games now John and I have said before that 4th edition D&D is really not our favorite edition. In fact, it's probably my least favorite edition of D&D. I'd rather play 1st edition D&D over 4th edition most of the time. But in the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, it has many sections that are amazing for new DMs. The 4th edition DMG actually taught people how to become Dungeon Masters. And on page 8 in the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, it starts talking about the different types of players that play D&D. The actor, the explorer, the instigator, the power gamer, the slayer, the storyteller, the thinker, and the watcher. That basically covers it all, but let's kind of break this down and go into it. So, the actor. The actor is someone who likes role-playing. They get into the skin of their character and play as someone different for a while. They like to imagine that they are the holy warrior sent out by their church to rid the land of evil. They like imagining they're the sneaky, dark thief skulking around in the shadows, stealing little bits of coin here and there, and possibly even a precious jewel. They love imagining that they're the raging barbarian, or the eloquent bard. Or the bizarre clown who comes along with the adventuring party because of his massive skill at Punch and Judy shows that distract and annoy his enemies into weakness. The actor is a great player to have at your table because they love being in the world. Just make sure that they don't disrupt everyone's actions by saying, oh, well, it's what my character would do. A big part of that, and this is just a real quick rant, uh, I, players all the time say, well, my character wouldn't do that. And that is often a valid thing to say, but 
if it's derailing the game or making the game unfun for people, to some degree, it's your responsibility to figure out why your character would do that. And honestly, people aren't as cut and dry as I would never do X or I would never do Y. You know, one great example was I remember a gaming group that I played with who had this issue where one of the players was playing a paladin, one of the players was playing a rogue. And the rogue stole something from a temple unbeknownst to the paladin and received a curse for it. Eventually, the rogue was able to get the curse lifted, but in so doing, he had to confess to his sins. And the paladin's player said, well, my character can't play with the rogue anymore. Just, he wouldn't. He absolutely wouldn't. He can't, he can't forgive that. That's a problem that breaks the game. It doesn't make it more fun. It doesn't make it better for anyone. And it certainly makes your paladin look like he's just kind of an asshole. Honestly, a better solution to that might be for the paladin to think of a reason why he can accept this. For instance, the rogue was literally cursed. He got to learn a lesson from it. Maybe now he's going to have more respect for religious things and holy relics. Maybe he'll recognize the import of these things. And maybe it's something the paladin can laugh about, seeing his god able to visit this divine justice on someone, and then that person being able to have that lifted only when they finally confess to their sins and make atonement. That's great. That's a better way of playing this. Don't let your character get in the way of the game. You can run a character who's interesting, who has these strong moral stands or has these strong positions without just disrupting the game for disrupting the game's sake. Anyway. The next player archetype is the explorer. Whereas the actor likes to be someone different, the explorer likes to be somewhere different. They like to explore far-off exotic lands, rich exotic cultures, delve into deep dungeons that they would never be able to see with their own two eyes, and play in a world that is not our own. And it doesn't just mean actually exploring things. This is about immersion. You know, he might not be exploring per se when he delves into a book in character or wants to know the history of a location or something like that. But those are all forms of exploration, too. The idea is that he is interested in this detailed fictional world and he wants to have the amazing experience of being able to be somewhere that never was. It's the kind of person who after seeing a movie, wants to explore that movie's world and learn things about it and, and find out like who the players were and what the secrets are of the characters that were only somewhat revealed, that sort of thing. It's the same thing, that urge to explore within the setting. The next player archetype is the instigator. The instigator is someone who likes to make things happen. They're the one who, when they walk into the command room on the ship and see the big red button, immediately push it without reading any of the signs around. They want to see what happens. Yeah, it's probably a death ray or a self-destruct button or the button that releases the horrible clown from the closet. Who knows? But it's going to have something happen. And that's the thing. They just want to have something happen. And that's actually can be very good for a game. I mean, it gives you an opportunity to have someone who's always going to be this free radical bouncing between activities and things and giving them a chance to actually influence the immediate surroundings and the game world in general. The instigator is the one who's most likely to want to engage with a world-class organization and, and topple governments and things like that in the game, and that can be awesome. Oftentimes, the instigator will be the one to kick in the door and go, no, we are ready to take on this challenge. So often, player characters will sit around for 
minutes, hours even planning out their next strategy, hoping that the boss battle will go the way that they want to go. Meanwhile, the instigator's going, uh, guys... Leroy Jenkins! Jenkins. Yeah! Leroy Jenkins, now that's an instigator for you. The next player archetype is the Power Gamer. The Power Gamer wants to gain their levels. They want to get the different magic items. They want to build their class and character in the exact right way to be better than the game. The Power Gamer wants to feel important and powerful. They want to show off their cool build. Uh, If we're talking about the magic player archetypes, the power gamer is often your Johnny, the person who uses all of the synergies together to do something well beyond what they should be able to do. It might not even necessarily be about winning or about making the best character. It's about making a character that gets a lot for a small investment. That's what min-maxing is all about. Minimum investment for the maximum results. This person isn't necessarily someone who's going to break your game either. That's, uh, That's kind of an outdated view of this concept. People do this because they have a appreciation for the rules and an appreciation for the way that power curves work. We appreciate power. We like to see our characters able to do things in the world. The power gamer has a lot of fun making his characters. And in many ways, that means that they're going to be a great resource to the group because they have to know the rules to do that. So if anyone's going to know the rules, it's going to be your power gamer. The real concern with the power gamer is, of course, that vicious cycle of optimization where they optimize their character to make all the standard challenges too weak for them. And then you have to start throwing non-standard challenges at them, which they then optimize for. And it just turns into a vicious cycle of this and everyone else gets caught up in it. And there's ways of mitigating that that we'll probably get into later. But let's just for now say that the power gamer has fun by min-maxing, making powerful characters, and there's nothing wrong with that. The next player archetype is the Slayer. The Slayer's kind of like the Power Gamer, but the Slayer just wants to have fun in combat. The Power Gamer will try to optimize their character for one thing. The Slayer just wants to kill things. They have the most fun when the DM says, Roll Initiative. Now, that doesn't even necessarily mean that they make the best characters, or even the most combat-centered characters. Maybe they enjoy fighting with characters who don't have the upper hand, who have to have difficulty overcoming challenges and have to fight in non-standard ways in order to keep their advantage. But the point is, the Slayer is all about combat. They have fun defeating enemies, killing things, or otherwise going through these combat encounters. They are your combat-focused players. Some players really enjoy the whole tactical combat aspect of the game, Even then, you don't necessarily have to have a player who is a slayer to be obsessed with the tactical combat or something. They just want to have those violent conflicts and come out ahead. The next player archetype is the storyteller. Now, the actor likes being a different person. The explorer likes being in a different place. The storyteller likes hearing the story. These are really three aspects that all go in with the game world. The storyteller likes knowing that the uh, story has an inciting incident, a rising action, a powerful climax, a few minutes of rest afterward with uh, water, wondering if it's good for you, and a denouement. It's all wonderful. The storyteller is the person who knows the lore of the world, 
who often provides an extensive background to their player character, but also has a tendency to make their character the main character of the story or kind of uses everyone else at the table to be their sidekicks. Yeah, that can be an issue, but in general, what the storyteller really wants is a fun, engaging, exciting story. They want to play through an epic. They want to be part of a TV show or part of a conspiracy. They want to have a story unfold. And in most of the games I run, that's really my favorite type of player, the type of player who's excited to see how the story unfolds and to be part of that story and to be able to influence the events of one cohesive narrative. To me, that's really cool. And I really consider myself mostly a storyteller when it comes to both playing a character and playing in a game. We all have aspects of all of these things, but if I had to pin myself down to one, I'd probably be a storyteller. I don't really know exactly where I fall on any of these. I know that I enjoy being an actor and having my NPCs be people. I know that I enjoy telling a good story. I know that as a player, I quite enjoy being a power gamer. But I think that my personal player archetype is the next one, the thinker, the person who makes careful choices, who thinks through puzzles, who spends a lot of time wondering about the riddle. Let's see... The fog around a waterfall's base. What? What is that? What is that? That's mist. Put the word mist into the puzzle. Ha ha, we've succeeded. Yeah, I think your Halloween games are one of the best examples of this that I've honestly ever seen. It is about solving all these fun challenges and looking at these puzzles and things through a different eye. And I think that... The thinker is good to have in a group because it does give you some grounding strategy and planning. A thinker is all about trying to think of ways to solve situations, new approaches to situations. And in a lot of cases, it's the person who's going to take the creative approach to the situation, not necessarily going guns blazing or necessarily even decide to just do it all stealth style or use their charisma to work their way through the situation. The thinker is more likely to take a balanced approach that lets them look at all of the different aspects and pros and cons of situations. The weakness of that is it can lead to them spending a lot of time on situations that can easily be solved uh, more simply. It is nice to have a thinker and an instigator in the group. The thinker will often come up with the right solution, but then might second-guess themselves, or third-guess themselves, or come up with 15 different solutions, any one of which could work. The instigator will go, okay, we have one solution, let's go with that and not let the thinker drag the game down. I'm reminded of a set of cones that was made for 4th edition when it first came out. I don't remember who... I have to look up who said them so I can put them in a blog. But they were all Zen-style cones, and one of them was a group of adventurers that was talking about how to tackle a situation. You know, the paladin thought that they should attack the strongest enemies first to, you know, take down the biggest threats. The rogue thought that they should focus on the weak ones. Uh, the ranger thought that they should divide their attacks between the enemies so as to keep them all on their toes. And the wizard thought that the best thing was to catch the enemies in the crossfire. Each one went in to do their plan and they all died as a result. And in the afterlife, they were all debating that if they had followed the plan that they laid out, they would have survived and all of them were right. And that's the whole cone. And I think having a good synergy between a thinker and an instigator can help to fix that situation. With the thinker coming up with a plan, the instigator actually having the guts to go through with it. 
Our last player archetype is the Watcher, and this is probably the most contentious of these player archetypes. I know that for quite a while, I had a very strong, if you come to my table, you're going to play the game uh, attitude. And the Watcher is there for the social interaction. They're there to be part of the group. The Watcher is there to sit and be with their friends. And I've come to realize that fellowship between players is part of the reason that we play role-playing games, that we play board games, that we play games of all sorts together. And we shouldn't shun the Watcher. And in fact, the Watcher might be able to help calm disputes between people, might be a a good uh, party manager. Um, They also are perfectly fine with playing almost any role. Just, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll play this character. They aren't going to steal the spotlight away from anyone. They're going to let the other people have their moments to shine, and they're going to just have fun playing the game. I used to be very anti-watcher, too. I didn't like people who didn't want to take an active role in participating in the game. I would encourage them to do so, or I would even punish them for not doing so by like not awarding them full experience or something like that. I think I've come to recognize that that's a bad approach to this, that really when we see people who take this approach to games, that they want to just be present and be part of the experience, that we should encourage that and we should try to encourage that in ways that do include them without forcing the inclusion beyond what they're comfortable with, you know? Everyone starts out somewhere, and some people aren't quite as bold about these things. And taking a role like being the watcher in the group, that can give you some opportunities. Uh, It might be a good time for someone to be logging information from the game, to be taking notes for the players, to otherwise, you know, keep things organized. All of those are roles that a watcher can do very well that won't necessarily detract from their experience as the watcher. In fact, it might even enhance it and give them a way to be useful while still uh, reveling in the enjoyment of spending time with their friends and being part of a game. So before we started recording, John and I were talking about how Uh, A lot of video games try to appeal to a broad audience to get as many different type of players as they can playing the game. And I realize that not every role-playing game is good for every type of player. I mean, in video games, not everyone wants to play a JRPG. Not everyone wants to play a uh, tactical shooter. Uh, Not everyone wants to play Dark Souls. And that's where we kind of get into the different game types. Uh, GNS theory for role-playing games tells us that each role-playing game is divided into three categories. Gamist games, narrativist games, and simulationist games. Gamist games, of course, being the ones that play like a game. that are more about rules than anything else and have a strong, cohesive rule. I think the absolute best example of a gamist game I've ever played in my life was D&D 4th Edition. It is such a gamist game. Everything about it is about having tight rules that interact as expected and that just work. The next type is the narrativist game, which is a game that's about telling a story. Some games do this more explicitly than others. You can do this with almost any game, but games like Fudge, for example, or um, actually Fate System now? Fate. Yeah, Fate System. That used to be Fudge, right? It, yep. it, it evolved from Fudge? Yeah, sorry. I never keep that one straight. Fate System games 
are very narrativist. They do have rules, but those rules are structured specifically to tell your story. The entire World of Darkness line is strongly narrativist, with the gamest aspects being fairly minimal, the final type being the simulationist games. That'll be like GURPS or other games that are meant to kind of map one-to-one -one with the real world, where it's incredibly important to have rules that make sense and that never cause you to question whether the game could work in real life. Those three types of games appeal to different people for different reasons. All of them can appeal to each of those different archetypes we listed. You know, you can be an actor in a gamist, narrativist, or simulationist game. You can be a power gamer in a gamist, yes, a narrativist, and even a simulationist game. Those are all options. But each of those games is going to appeal to different people in different ways. And I think it's important that we recognize what about a game appeals to the players. Now, in board gaming, we have different types of board games that are divided into three categories. We have our Euro or German style board games. We have our Ameritrash games and we have our war games. Each of these type of games appeals to different type of players. Euro games are less confrontational between players and less luck-based and have deep strategy. Oftentimes they are portrayed as the player with the most skill is going to win a Euro game every single time. Ameritrash games often have uh, large amounts of randomization, large amounts of luck, possibly even player elimination. And war games, well, war games are war games. You have dudes, you put them on a, on a big board, you push them toward each other, and then you put them away. Yeah, let, let's let's make it clear. If you've played a war game, you've played every war game to some degree or another. There's no war game that falls outside of the archetype of how war games work. But even so, I mean, there's different war games, and they're all very different, but they're war games. Uh, Ameritrash, I, you know, I never liked the term Ameritrash some, so much because it's obviously meant to be pejorative and to convince us that American games are trash. And some Ameritrash games, even some of the iconic ones, are really good games. I mean, very enjoyable. Twilight Imperium is an amazing game. If, have, have you ever played Twilight Imperium? I've never played a full game of Twilight Imperium. I've started, but I've never actually finished one. It's, no. uh, it's a daunting process. Yeah, it's, it's a six to eight hour long board game. But yeah, so each of these types attracts different types of players. And I, I really suppose that we should uh, bring this back to kind of our summary. Understanding the type of players that you have in your gaming group will help you have more fun. A big part of it is that if you are the storyteller, DM, or whatever, you know how large a net to cast. You know what you need to do to appeal to each of your players because you understand which of these archetypes they relate to more strongly. You know you know which players you need to challenge with combat encounters versus which players you need to give interesting NPCs to. All of these things let you design a game around your players and make a game that everybody is excited to play. The biggest example that I have been able to come up with is from my personal life. John and I run a World of Darkness changeling game. And when we're sitting down and planning out what the next session is going to be, one of our big talking points is how are we going to end the session? Do we have a big moment 
to end the session on? Do we have a do we have a beat in the story that the player characters will remember and keep them excited for the next session? We know that a lot of our players fall into the storyteller archetype and really enjoy knowing the next part of the story is about to happen, that the things that they've done have consequences. And doing all of that helps us create what I hope is a very good game for our group. Right. When we finish out our sessions, we usually try to finish with some sort of cliffhanger moment, something that brings them into whatever story arc is currently happening or about to happen. You know, something like a character's long estranged sister showing up at the door unexpectedly or the sudden revelation that one of their allies has gone off the deep end and imprisoned one of his rivals. Things like that. Things that make the player characters say, wow, there is a bigger story happening here. And we feel that that appeals best to our group because that is kind of the least common denominator between them. I mean, some of them are actors. Some of them are power gamers. Some of them are slayers. But all of them are storytellers to some degree or another, and they all connect to that archetype. So that, we feel, is the best way of bringing them all back into the story. And that's kind of a practical example of how recognizing how your players play the games is a great way of being able to tailor the game to them. So, that was episode one of season three. Woo! Feels like we're off to a decent start. What do we have up next? Our next episode is going to be about subsystems, minigames, and mechanics. Adding stuff to your RPG. A great topic indeed, because so many RPGs do feature little subsystems, minigames, and special mechanics. I feel that we're going to be talking a lot about Pathfinder in this one. This is Ben. Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Just as everybody possesses instincts, so he also possesses a stock of archetypical images. Carl Jung. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.